opening up to Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses. And in the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 10 today, Jesus is going to be addressing, at the prompt of some of the Pharisees, the question of divorce. Today is an extremely important Bible study. It is very important that the church realizes God's ideal for marriage, what the Bible has to say about divorce and remarriage. There are some things in the Word of God about the subject that are very clear-cut, about which we can make no mistake. There are some other things that are a little harder to understand. Today, as a congregation, we will try to wade through them. It is important that we also understand that God's ideal for marriage and His standards on divorce and remarriage are not for the church only, but they are for society as a whole. It is God who instituted marriage. It is God who makes the rules for society as a whole. But if the church does not uphold God's ideal for marriage and subsequently divorce, nobody else will. So for the church, this is an extremely important message. For those of you who have been divorced, or are married, or are considering divorce, this is very important. For those of you who have never been married, and hope to be one day, this is extremely important that you have a biblical understanding of marriage. Starting in verse 1 of Mark chapter 10. And rising up, Jesus went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds were gathered around him. And again, according to his customs, he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to him, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples began questioning Jesus about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Father, this morning in your word, we ask for your guidance. That Lord, you would not only guide us in moving through the scriptures, that you would not only guide us in interpretation, but you would guide us in our hearts. That right now as a church we would surrender humanistic ideals. We would surrender our own agendas and experiences and we would desperately cling to the word of God. Your word, O God, is our plumb line. It is our measure and our standard of truth for doctrine and for practice. Apart from it, we are utterly lost in this life. And so we ask that God, you would illuminate our hearts now. The Father, you would send the Holy Spirit to instruct us. As Jesus said, he is the instructor or the teacher of all things. Guide us in interpretation. Guide us in application to our hearts. Lord, as we approach this subject, we are grateful for your tremendous grace. The gentleness with which you deal with us. Your restoring grace and the newness that you bring to our lives through the power of the cross. 
manifest that here and instruct us now for your glory and your name and according to your kingdom principles. Amen. It's very clear that apart from the Bible, the world has its own ideal for marriage. And generally speaking, the world's ideal for marriage is guided by or fueled by the concept of self-fulfillment. What do I want? What is best for me? What makes me feel good? That is how the world approaches the subject of marriage and divorce, is on a me-I basis. There's a secular book called Divorce, How and When to Let Go, by John Adam and Nancy Williamson. And from that book, I read you this tragic quote. Your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. Nothing can be more perverted with regards to the Word of God than that quote right there. It is all about self. It has nothing to do with the other, with their well-being. It has nothing to do with commitment. It has nothing to do with God or the Word of God. And because this is the predominant mindset in our nation, our nation reaps the results of divorce. And I've brought for you this morning some statistics about divorce in America. They're up on the screen for you. Of all first marriages, only 25% both endure and are happy. That means 75% fail and are not happy. In over half of all marriages, at least one person has been married before. In about 15% of all marriages, at least one person has been married three or more times. 20% of all first marriages fail within five years of the wedding date. 33% fail within 10 years, and 43% fail within 15 years. 70% of all persons in our society have been impacted by divorce, either the divorce of their parents or their own. While a majority of persons choose their marriage partners based on appearance and chemistry, the fact is that 75 to 80% of all chemistry evaporates within six to eight months unless the marriage is significantly undergirded by deeper and more durable compatibility. Divorce rates are holding steady at 50%. And the source for that is cbm.com. I found on a website last night, a do-it-yourself legal divorce kit. It used to be $39.95, now it's only $33.95 plus $4 for shipping and handling. You mail in and you can easily buy yourself with no hassle, with no problem, with not much thought, secure for yourself a legal divorce. That is somewhat funny, though it really ought to be tragic. Because it reflects the fact that there is no value placed upon the institution ordained by God of marriage in our nation. There is no value placed on marriage in our nation. And you know who reaps the consequences of this is our children. Here's some statistics with regards to fatherless homes. 
Fatherless homes account for 63% of youth suicides. Fatherless homes account for 90% of homeless and runaway children. Fatherless homes account for 85% of children with behavioral problems. Fatherless homes account for 71% of high school dropouts. Fatherless homes account for 85% of youths in prison and 50% of teen mothers. This is the result in our nation of a rejection of the biblical principle that we are to adhere to God's word and to consider others as more important than ourselves. That husbands are to love their wives like Christ loves the church, having given himself up for her. And that wives are to submit unto their husbands in all things as unto the Lord. When that is rejected and the sanctity of the institution of marriage begins to erode, a society erodes, do a historical study on that and you'll see the proof for yourself. So it's all driven by the self-fulfillment, humanistic, my-needs-first ideology. And it's tragic to say, but it is necessary to point out this morning, that this ideology has not only crept into the church, but has become prevalent within the church in America. This me, my needs, my emotions, my wants, over what God says, and over the needs of others. Lawrence Crabb, on writing about Christians, says this, We have become so conditioned to measuring the rightness of what we do by the quality of emotion it generates that a new version of relativistic ethics has developed that might be called the morality of fulfillment. Fulfillment has taken on greater urgency and value than obedience. That is true in the church in America today, and it is tragic. Rejecting biblical principles holding to the wisdom of men, doing what seems right in our own eyes. And so the facts are that the divorce rate within the church is the same as the divorce rate within the world. There is no difference. The church is failing in marriage. They're doing no better than the atheists. The Bible teaches concerning fulfillment that more important than self-fulfillment or even our own happiness is obedience to the Word of God. R. Kent Hughes writes, The elevation of one's own self-fulfillment as the ultimate good reduces God's word to an optional guidebook to meet one's emotional needs. The inerrant Bible is replaced with a humanistic value system in Christians' lives, and the error is deadly. Proverbs bolsters this in Proverbs 14, uh, 12, and 16, 25, where it says, There is a way that seems right to man, but the end of the path is destruction. Biblically speaking, the path to fulfillment is obedience. Finding one's life in losing it, as Jesus said. Surrendering to the sovereignty of God, to His ideals and His principles. Being crucified with Christ, so to speak. Being able to say, as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who lives, it's Christ who lives in me. Self-fulfillment is realized through surrendering self to the sovereignty of God. And so in marriage, in considering the other as more important than ourselves, that's what agape love is. That's what the love of the marriage is to be. That's why we're told in Ephesians 5 that the husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church, having given himself up for her. You understand that Jesus Christ died for his bride. 
I just did a wedding yesterday. And every time I do a wedding, I am mindful of the fact that I with the groom are always standing at the altar. And it is the bride who is at the end of the aisle. And as she makes it to the end of the aisle, she looks down the aisle and what she sees is the groom standing at the altar. The altar in the Bible is always a place of sacrifice. You see, from the beginning of the wedding ceremony, it is designed into it that the woman sees he is the sacrifice. When someone has to die to self in this marriage, it's the man first. That is the model that Christ Jesus has given us for the church. And she comes down the aisle and she meets that living sacrifice right there and the two become one. And because the wife understands that the man has her absolute best in mind, as Christ Jesus has the best in mind for the church, it is easy for the woman to then submit to the man as it is easy for us to submit unto the Lord. Because we know that the Lord has our very best in mind, proved it by spilling his blood. And so as the man walks in his role for marriage, the woman is easily able to submit to one who considers her as more important than himself. And that is the biblical ideal for marriage. And not until we begin to move and walk and live in that will the church look any different than the world. And so the context for the teaching today comes to us in verses 2 through 4. And some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. By the way, Matthew in the parallel account adds that they said whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife for any cause at all. That's important. We'll mention it in a minute. And Jesus answered and said, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So these Pharisees come as Jesus is leaving the area of Galilee. And they ask him this question, not out of sincerity, but to test him. A few reasons why they wanted to do that. One reason is because we learn in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, that the Pharisees were conspiring together with the Herodians toward the death of Jesus Christ. You remember that John the Baptist was put to death by Herod because he had condemned him for his incestuous marriage. He had divorced his wife and he had married his niece. And John the Baptist was saying publicly, it is unlawful, Herod, for you to have her as your wife. And so Herod was put in prison and he was subsequently beheaded. And it is the Herodians, according to Mark 3, 6, that are conspiring with the Pharisees toward the death of Jesus Christ. So they come now to trap him in this, that perhaps Herod might take him captive as he took John the Baptist captive and put him to death. Jared, uh, Jesus, what do you think about this divorce issue? Hoping that he might arouse the wrath of Herod. Beyond that, though, there was a prominent uh, in-house debate within Judaism during that time. You saw here in verse 3 that they responded, that Jesus responded and said, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. They're quoting there from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. We have it on the PowerPoint for you. Deuteronomy 24, 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her away. So that's what they're referring to here. Jesus said, well, what does the Word of God say? You want to know about divorce? What does the Word of God say? What does it say in Deuteronomy? In Deuteronomy, Moses said that we were allowed to write our wives a certificate of divorce and send her away. 
And so the burning question of Jesus' day was what does this phrase, some indecency, mean? Because Moses permitted them to divorce their wives on the ground of some indecency. And so the question is, what does that mean? And there were different schools of thoughts within Israel during that time. There was a liberal rabbi who came before Jesus, and his name was Hillel. And during the time of Jesus, there was the school of Hillel. And it was sort of the liberal school of thought within Judaism. And the way that they interpreted Deuteronomy 24.1 was in the widest manner possible. They said, well, you can send your wife away if she spoiled your dinner. Or you can send your wife away for having an improper hairstyle. Or you can send your wife away for talking to other men in public. Or you can send her away for speaking disrespectfully of her mother-in-law. And so Hillel and his followers, the liberal ones, had a broad interpretation of what some indecency, that phrase in Deuteronomy 24.1 meant. There was a rabbi who was even more liberal. His name was Rabbi Akiba. And Rabbi Akiba said that you could send your wife away, you could write her a certificate of divorce, if a man found another woman more beautiful. It's ridiculous and it's absurd, but it's a tremendous parallel to America today. And then there was a more conservative school of thought who came under Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai interpreted this phrase, some indecency, in a more strict sense. And he said that it applied only to some sexual misconduct short of adultery. Most likely, premarital sex. In other words, if a husband got married to a woman and found out on the wedding night that she was not a virgin, he could annul the marriage. He could write her a certificate of divorce. And by the way, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, once that certificate of divorce was written, that woman was free to marry, it says in verses 2, 3, and 4. And we'll look at those a little later on. And so there was this competing school of thought. Why does it not mean adultery, some indecency in Deuteronomy 24? Very simply, because in that time, adultery was punishable by death. Both for the adulteress and the adulterer. According to Deuteronomy 22.22 and Leviticus 20.10, if you were caught in the act of adultery, if it could be proven by the mouth of two or three witnesses that you were an adulterer or an adulteress, you were stoned to death. So there was no divorce for adultery. You died. God's standard of holiness. And so it was in the context of this conservative liberal debate For what reason can we divorce our wives that the question is posed to Jesus in order to test him? And you see what Jesus did there. He referred him back to the word and then he begins to clarify the word by giving them God's ideal for marriage. So he says, they said in verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now Jesus clarifies and gives God's ideal for marriage in verse 5. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. In other words, God never instituted divorce in the Bible. There's never a time where God said, okay, divorce is okay now. Adultery or for whatever reasons, God never instituted divorce. The fact is in Deuteronomy is that divorce was rampant in Israeli society and God through Moses here and the word of God sought to regulate then divorce. 
It was never God's best and highest, but God permitted it. God allowed it. I hate that. That a holy God concedes to us at times. I hate that because it proves to me our sinfulness that we are an obstinate and stiff-necked people refusing to repent in certain areas. And I love it because the grace of God is so absolutely tremendous. It's the same idea that we see with Saul. Saul, the first king of Israel. God had declared that Israel was to be a theocracy. That he would be their only king. And that was to be the governmental system for Israel. But there came a time in Israel's history where Israel said, but all the other nations around us have kings. And so we want a king. And God said, no, but I am to be your king. And the people cried out to Samuel the prophet day and night, but we want a king. And so God conceded to their desires and said, okay, I'm going to give you a king. But in giving you a king, there's going to be some standards and some guidelines. This is not my best and highest, mind you, Israel. I wish that you would simply let me be your king. I want to rule over you. But since you are rejecting that, I'm going to put some guidelines on your king. And so he did for Saul and the subsequent kings. Same idea here with divorce. I wish you wouldn't do it, Israel. Marriage is supposed to be built for life, but because you are rejecting it, we are going to, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, the only passage in the Old Testament that deals with divorce, we are going to put some guidelines on it. And that's what God is doing there, and that's what they're appealing to. And so Jesus appeals to God's ideal and revealing the original plan for marriage, picking it up in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, Jesus says, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Jesus puts forward God's ideal for marriage. It comes from Genesis 2.24. That's what Jesus was quoting there. It was Genesis 2.24. And it carries in it these three ideas. Leaving, cleaving, and becoming one. Leaving in the sense that there is to come a separation from the parents with the intent of forming a new family. Very important, we, we always address this in premarital counseling, that the couples who are getting married are to leave their parents, you know. There's a new family, not in the sense that you don't love them anymore. But there is to be a leaving, and then subsequently a cleaving, a being glued together in a permanent lifelong bond. This is what God does at the marriage altar. I as a pastor perform wedding ceremonies, but I don't actually do anything. It's God that does the work. I share the words and guide them through the biblical precepts, but it's the Spirit of God that takes the two and makes them one. So there's a leaving from the parents, there is a cleaving together, the gluing together in a lifelong bond. And then thirdly, the becoming of one flesh, the consummating of the marriage through the sexual union. All three of these make up a marriage, not any one of them. Just because you had sex with somebody doesn't mean you're married to them. There is a sense, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where anybody that you engage in fornication with, you become glued to them in a sense. 
That is why it's so destructive in society. It's like gluing two pieces of paper together, letting it dry, and then ripping the pieces of paper apart. There's going to be parts that come off on this one from that one, and parts that come off on this one from that one, and neither one of those pieces of paper is ever whole again. That's what happens in fornication and premarital sex, according to the Bible, because there is a union that takes place that was designed by God to only be practiced in the marriage relationship. And within marriage, it is powerful and wonderful and beautiful and right and good and fun and God-blessed. Outside of marriage, it is fun for a season, and then comes the destruction. There's a, man that se- there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. And so marriage was intended from the beginning to be intimate, one flesh, and to be permanent. To be intimate and to be permanent. It is for this reason, understand, that God says in Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. God says in Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. Take note, be careful, listen to me, and we'll cover this in a few moments. God never says he hates the divorcee. He doesn't hate the person that gets divorced. God hates divorce because he knows the destructive nature of it. Because he knows the statistics that we've looked at. He knows what it does to children. He knows what it does to adults. And he knows what it does to society. God does not hate the person that gets divorced, but he hates divorce because of its destructive nature. And so here in Mark, Jesus covers the question of can we divorce our wives for any reason with a very clear answer of no the reason he gives is because marriage is by divine institution in verse 6 that it is the strength of the relationship in verse 7 that it is by the two becoming one flesh in mark 8 or mark 10 8 and it is an express command what god has put together let no man tear apart and because of the consequences that result from divorce and remarriage not only the statistics that we spoke of but those who then remarry are guilty of adultery We'll talk about the implications of that in a moment. So the teaching of Jesus in Mark chapter 10 concerning divorce is that divorce is never permissible. The teaching of Jesus on divorce in Luke chapter 16 is identical. The divorce is never permissible. We're going to deal with the exception clause in a moment, but before we do, let's answer a few more questions from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. First Corinthians chapter seven. We'll start in verse eight. First Corinthians seven, verse eight. Paul says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them to remain even as I. Paul was single. Paul thought that there was tremendous value in being single for the sake of ministry. But the Bible is very clear that unless you have the gift of celibacy, it is not good for man to be alone. Understand that. And then it says in verse 9, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry. Okay, so for the unmarried and for the widowed, if they don't have self-control, if they don't have the gift of celibacy, let them get married. And he clarifies here, for it is better to marry than to burn. To burn with sexual passion, desire, and lust. It is better to marry than to burn. So the clear teaching on the Bible for the unmarried is, unless you have the gift of celibacy, get married. And if you are a widow or a widower, 
your husband or your wife died, you are no longer bound to the covenant of marriage. When one party of a covenant dies, the other is free from the covenant. And so the widower or the widow can get married again unless they have that gift of celibacy from the Lord. Verse 10. But to the married, okay, here we go, to the married in a broad sense, those who are married, I give instruction. Now Paul clarifies, not I, but the Lord. Not meaning that what he's about to say carries any more weight than his other epistles where he's writing, but he's saying Jesus already covered this in his teachings in the Gospels. So to the married I give instruction, not I, but the Lord. I'm just reiterating to you what the Lord already said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he says this, that the wife should not leave her husband. Again, he says what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, that there should not be divorce. And then he says, but, in verse 11, but if she does leave, okay, now Paul is a realist. Paul understands that the word of God thus far has told us that there shouldn't be divorce. Paul understands that not everybody is going to obey the word of God in every circumstance. And so he now then begins to, just as Moses did in Deuteronomy 24, put some regulation on divorce. If you guys are going to be disobedient to the word of God, if you're going to divorce, then we're going to regulate it. And here are the guidelines for the divorced. And he puts them very clearly here. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not send away his wife. So it's the same for the husband and the wife. If they choose to be divorced in rejection of the word of God, the only recourse thus far, and we have more things to cover, the only recourse thus far is that they either remain single or they be reconciled. That is the very clear teaching of the word of God right here. There's no disputing that. For the person who has been divorced, they either remain single or they be reconciled to their original partner. That is what Paul and, subsequent, and before that the Lord teaches right here. Now, there's more. Verse 12. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord. Paul's not saying here, now, this is just my opinion, you know, this isn't God's word. He's saying, now, this part, Jesus didn't cover in the Gospels. And so I, by the Spirit of God, will cover some stuff he didn't cover. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. In other words, if you are a Christian married to a non-Christian, you'd never have the God-given right to divorce that person. The Word of God tells you very clearly that you are to remain with them. Next verse, verse 13. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, set apart for the purposes of God. God is going to work in that family because of the believer that is there. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy because of the believing parents. Verse 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called you to peace. So if someone is married to a non-Christian, as long as that non-Christian chooses to remain with them in that marriage, they are bound to remain with them in that marriage. Because it may result, verse 16, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? What is the reason given to stay with the unbelieving husband or wife? Because they may be saved through your influence and through God working through you in the family and also for your children. 
But if that non-believer refuses to stay with the believer, then the believer is free. The non-believer says, I don't want to be married to you anymore. Then the believer can let them go. And it says here very clearly that they are no longer under bondage, meaning no longer under bondage to law, meaning the law of marriage. And so we can safely conclude to this, though it's disputed by some, that the person who is a Christian, whose non-believing spouse refused to stay with them, is then able and allowed by God to remarry. So far, that is the only case we have in the Bible to remarry is the widower and the one who is abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. These things are contested by Bible scholars, but that is my current position on those thoughts. So here's what's very clear thus far as we speak about marriage, and we're getting to the exception clause of Matthew 19. Here's what is very clear and without mistake. Number one, marriage is intended to be intimate and permanent according to Genesis 2.24. That is God's design from the beginning. God never instituted divorce. He has only sought to regulate it because of the hardness of men's heart. Secondly, what is very clear is God hates the divorce. He doesn't hate the divorced person, but he hates divorce because of its destructive nature. What else is clear is Mark 10, Jesus teaches no divorce. Luke chapter 16, Jesus teaches no divorce. What is very clear is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you did get divorced contrary to the word of God, you either stay single or be reconciled. And in 1 Corinthians 7.15, if the unbelieving spouse departs, the believer is no longer under bondage to that marriage contract or covenant. And lastly, what is very, very clear is that God's best and highest is always, always reconciliation. That's why the clear instruction of the Word of God there is if you get a divorce, either stay single or be reconciled. Because in those cases where the divorce took place, despite the Word of God and the teachings of God, God doesn't recognize that divorce. That is why when that person goes ahead and gets remarried, Jesus called it in our text. We read it in Mark chapter 10, verse 12. He called it adultery. Because he didn't recognize the divorce, the divorce because the marriage was meant to be one. And what God has put together, let no man tear asunder. It was meant to be permanent. And so God's ideal is that you would be reconciled to the person that you were divorced from. The world scoffs at that. The world says, this is impossible. This is ridiculous. And God would say, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. There was a man... A couple in the college fellowship at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, passed several years. And they had the most hideous marriage I have ever seen in my life. It was absolutely horrendous. It was absolutely hideous. But they had no biblical grounds for divorce. But they went ahead and they divorced. They couldn't work it out. And we were teaching through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And the man who had been divorced all the time, he's thinking, man, I just got out of this horrible marriage. I can't wait to find a godly woman to marry her. And we came to the teaching of 1 Corinthians 7 that told him clearly, because his divorce was not biblical, that he had to either remain single or be reconciled. And he looked me in the face that night and he said, are you serious? I said, bro, I didn't write the Bible. It hurts my heart. This is God's ideal. This is God's standard. Yes, we've got to hold to this. He said, Britt, you know how ridiculous that is. I could never be reconciled to that woman. I have no desire. I have no hope. It is impossible. That is insane. She is insane. Today, they are remarried, living with their children, in love, 
happy, and blessed. The reason for that is, is that when he was confronted with the Word of God, he took it as the Word of God. And he said, well, I'm going to obey it, and I'm going to work toward reconciliation because I don't feel called to be single. And God reconciled the marriage. Nobody, including me, ever thought it was possible. God did it because he believed the Word of God and responded in obedience. So those are things that are very clear. There is one thing that is not so clear. The famous exception clause. Let's turn now to Matthew chapter 19 and look at it. Matthew chapter 19, excuse me, is a parallel account to that account that we read in Mark 10 and that we referenced in Luke chapter 16. It's going to shed some light on the subject for us. It says in verse 8, Jesus picking up what we already mentioned in Mark, Luke 19, 8, And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of, a, of the man and his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. In other words, Jesus' standard on marriage and divorce is so high that even the disciples said, well, then it's better not to get married. If the only reason that Jesus gives now in Matthew 19.9 is that you can divorce for immorality, the disciples said, that's too high of a standard for us. Not even Shammai had that one. It's better not to get married. Understand that Jesus upholds the highest ideal of marriage here and for divorce. There is a clear exception clause. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality. It is very clear that in the word of God now there is given an exception. There is a permittance for divorce now here. The only question is what is the immorality? It is the same question that in that day the Jews were pondering concerning Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 in some indecency. What is this immorality that Jesus speaks of? There have been several things, uh, ideas or theories given in church history throughout the years. The most predominant one is that it refers to adultery. The most predominant historical church view is this. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except in the case of adultery and marries another woman commits adultery. The Greek word there is porneia. There's another word in Greek that means adultery. Although the Greek word porneia refers to a broad spectrum of sexual immorality, fornication, bestiality, incest, various other things, it can also mean adultery. It seems very clear and the overwhelming evidence of Bible scholars, church fathers, and church history seems to point to the fact that Jesus is saying here that divorce is permissible in the case of adultery. That is not because when you commit adultery, you are now permanently glued to that other person and the original union cannot be put back together. That's not the reason. It is because the hardness of men's hearts 
that there seems to be almost an impossibility with men to recover from such a thing when one of the spouses has committed adultery. It seems incredibly difficult. And so it appears, though there have been other theories forwarded, and we can explore those at a later time, but it appears that Jesus is saying here, divorce is permissible in the case of adultery. Having said that, understand, it does not mean that divorce is preferable in the case of adultery. God's best and highest is always that marriage to stay together. God's best and God's highest is always reconciliation. In the case of adultery, divorce should be the last option. In fact, as Christians, we should just begin to say it's not an option because with God, all things are possible and the two can be reconciled. I don't want to sound condemning to anybody here. It is my job to uphold the word of God and God's best and highest. That is my God-given task. I didn't write the Bible. I struggle with some of the things that are difficult like you do. But God's best and highest is that marriage is permanent and that men and women, even in that situation, are reconciled. Now, this is very clear. Divorce is not permitted under any circumstances other than sexual immorality. And, of course, when the non-believer abandons a believer. But other than that, it's not. Irreconcilable differences, it's not in the Word of God. Nothing but adultery is an exception clause. That would mean that a divorce for any other reason is an illegitimate divorce in the eyes of God. And that when you marry someone else, you commit adultery. Now, I am aware that many of the people in this room are in that very situation. So how do we deal with that? What does that mean? What does this mean by way of application? Number one, we've got to realize this. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Some Christians have painted it that way. The church has often treated divorced people in that manner, but divorce is not the unforgivable sin. If you divorce for a reason other than adultery, it is a sin. But Jesus poured out his blood upon the cross for all sins. And God is able to forgive you when you come before him and say, okay, God, either out of ignorance or even knowingly, against your word, I was divorced. God, forgive me. At that moment, God forgives you. The grace of God is that wonderful. Amen? It is not the unforgivable sin, and God does not hate the person who is divorced. It's a sin like all other sins. Understand though, God's best and highest is always reconciliation and God is able to do that. But if you were divorced and you have subsequently been remarried, an illegitimate divorce, was it in the case of adultery? It wasn't abandoned by an unbelieving spouse and you've been remarried again, what then do you do? Understand that this is one time where an old saying rings true. Two wrongs do not make a right. You, in that case, are never then to divorce the spouse that you are with to be reconciled with the original divorce. God never teaches that. In fact, he clearly teaches the opposite in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 2, 3, and 4, where he says that the woman then, after the man writes her certificate of divorce, is free to go and be remarried. But if that husband dies, the old husband cannot come back and remarry her. So the concept applies to us now. If you've been divorced and you got remarried and you now realize, wow, I 
I didn't get divorced on the right terms. You stick with the marriage that you are in and you learn to walk in forgiveness. God, I'm sorry that I got divorced contrary to your word. God, I'm sorry that I got remarried contrary to your word. But according to the amazing grace given to us on the cross, God, forgive me and cleanse me and wash me white as snow. And God, as only you can do in your grace, now bless my marriage. And God will do that. It is not the unforgivable sin. But I must tell you this, that there are always temporal consequences for our sin. You understand, I could go out and get drunk tonight. And if I go to bed saying to God, God, forgive me for that, that was sin. God will forgive me, but I will wake up in the morning with a throbbing headache. That is a temporal consequence. God removes the punishment for sin eternally, but he so often allows temporal consequences. You understand what I'm saying? If you're in prison and you're a non-Christian and you get saved in prison, God does not immediately release you from prison. You understand what I'm saying? Though you are a brand new creation in Christ, we will still experience some temporal consequences. David and Bathsheba is a perfect example. David committed adultery and murder with Bathsheba and her husband. David was guilty. Nathan confronted him on his sin and David repented and God surrounded him with songs of deliverance according to Psalm 32 and God forgave him. But then God said to him, David, your children will rebel. There will be violence in your house from this day forward. David, I forgive you from, for that sin, but it's going to have temporal consequences. Now, sometimes God in his grace removes temporal consequences. There is a woman in our ministry who just before coming to Christ, she contracted a disease through sexual immorality. She came to Jesus Christ. She was forgiven for her sexual immorality and her sin. God was under no obligation to remove that disease, but she asked God to remove it, and God in his grace did. God can remove temporal consequences, but sometimes he doesn't. Because of David's adultery, his household and his children suffered. He was forgiven, but there is consequences when we disobey the word of God. It's between you and your Lord and how he wants to deal with you. But if you're a new creation in Christ, you've got to walk in newness. That begs this question. What if I got divorced wrongly before I became a Christian? If I had gotten divorced wrongly as a Christian, my biblical options, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, are to remain single or be reconciled. But it was before I was a Christian, and now I'm a new creation in Christ. How do I approach that? Can I then be remarried? There is much controversy on this issue. And I myself have changed my position a few times. I will tell you right now that I am leaning toward this, and I will stand behind this. That when you're a new creation in Christ, the old things have passed away all things have become brand new. What if you're in in, an abusive relationship? If you've got to get away from your spouse, get away from them, God's best and highest would be to be praying for their repentance, their restoration, and your reconciliation. There were abused women in the first century and abused men. Jesus Christ could have made an exception for that right there in in Matthew chapter 19. He didn't. Don't endanger your life. Get out of that situation, but ask God to do a miracle. I've seen him do it. He can do it. I think the overarching thing to go away with is that God is able to save any marriage. If you're contemplating divorce, don't do it. It's not God's best. It's not God's highest. There will always be consequences 
for you, for your spouse, for the children, and for the nation. There will always be consequences. And having said God's best and highest, it is the responsibility of the church to seek to pursue his best and highest and to uphold it in a society that rejects the sanctity of the institution of marriage as ordained by God. We, of all people, must cling to the highest and the best of the biblical principle. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it's challenging. I understand that it directly applies to so many in this room. And all I would ask God is that you would shed your grace abroad in our hearts now. As we come before you in worship, you know any repentance that needs to take place. And Lord, you know how to forgive. You know how to surround with songs of deliverance. Only you could do that in the most wonderful way. You know people in this room that are engaged in adultery, that are considering divorce for all sorts of reasons. God, you are able to repair marriages. You are able to restore the years that the locust has eaten. You are able to rebuild the broken walls. You are able, God, to exchange beauty for ashes. With men, it's impossible. With God, it's possible. So God, thank you for your word. We make no apology for it. We reject our own prejudices and we reject humanistic ideals and we cling to your word and the sanctity of marriage. And we ask that you would raise up one church right here that holds to it. That you would raise up one congregation that is seeking your best and your highest. We know you have others, but God, we want to be one. And it's got to happen in the heart of every individual. And so Holy Spirit, convict according to your word. Forgive according to your grace. Heal according to your power. Have your way in our hearts.